Hello, folks. This is Sly James, and I'm here with our fourth iteration of No Filter Media. Uh, this is a forum for lively conversation with a number of different people about a number of different topics. I'm fortunate enough to be the co-founder of Wickham James Strategies and Solutions. I'm an author of two books, The Passion for Purpose and The Opportunity Agenda, a bold democratic plan to grow the middle class. I am a Marine, former mayor, and I am the grandfather of two wonderful uh, grandchildren. I uh, have a great family and all those good things. I'm here with my good friend, Joni. Hi, everybody. I'm Joni Wickham, co-founder of Wickham James Strategies and Solutions, author of The Thin Line Between Cupcake and Ditch, Sly's former chief of staff when he was mayor of Kansas City, Missouri, and current wrangler of a second grader and a couple of fur babies, too. You can check out our firm's website at wickhamjames.com to see how we can serve you and to book us for speaking engagements. You know, we're here and you'll hear why as we talk to our good friend, Howard Richards, you'll hear why I've come to refer to him as an undercover brother, like the 2002 Blaxploitation movie starring Eddie Griffith. I'll tell you what, this man has got so many angles to him that he will hurt you if you stand too close. He is born from a native of St. Louis. He is a, a person who has spent his life in a number, and I don't want to spoil the fun by having him tell you what he's done, but I will just tell you that he has had about a diverse of a life as one could expect or one could hope for, and is an extremely interesting, talented person. He has um, uh, lives in St. Louis now, uh, but he is a person who has been involved in that community down there. Uh, he's, he's won the Spirit of Hope Award. Uh, he has been involved in radio and sports and other types of things. He's been in Focus Leadership Group in St. Louis. We're here with uh, Howard Richard, a good man. So, Howard, how you doing today, brother? I am doing well. First of all, it's a pleasure to be with you both. Uh, this is, I, I'm sure, as the the title uh, states, no filter. I am looking forward to seeing how this thing evolves today. Uh, <laughs> sly, you know, I've heard a lot of things about you. <laughs> all good, of course. But, but also with Joni, the, the title of Joni's book, The Thin Lie Between Cupcake and Bitch, I'm a little scared, so. Um. I'm bringing cupcake to you today, Howard. Don't worry. Okay, okay, good, 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 good. <laughs> you get the cupcake. I get the other side. <laughs> There's some truth to that. <laughs> but I'm happy to be with you both and uh, looking forward to having a good conversation today. So, Howard, I alluded to the fact that you have done a number of different things. And I'll just get the two big ones right out there. On the one hand... You played football at the national in the National Football League for what seven years, eight years, seven years, and then at, at some point in your life, you decided to go undercover and become that brother, working with the CIA. How the hell did you manage to get from one of the places to the other? Let's start with how you got into the first one. Well, starting with the NFL, um, I, of course, football sports were always a big part of my life. Uh, and as I grew taller, you know, I was always probably the tallest, if, if not the second tallest kid in in my uh, grade school and high school. Um, played multiple sports, football, basketball, baseball. Um, and, and as I got older, uh, as much as I wanted to be a pro baseball player, football 
can't call it. Uh, I was better at that sport than than the others. And I had an uncle who played for the old Big Red, the, the St. Louis football Cardinals, Ernie McMillan, who I idolized and wanted to be like him. And uh, the more I grew, um, uh, I, I think the more emphasis was placed on that sport because of the influence of, of my uncle. Um, and I, I really started to, uh, I think, develop and my skill set uh, in, in that game really just was far uh, ahead of all the other sports. You know, I was like, I could play a little basketball, but I couldn't jump. I got some small college officers, but I knew that uh, my future was not uh, in college basketball. And um, uh, baseball was what it was. I mean, I kind of grew away from the sport, but the football was where it was for me and um, was able to get, um, was highly recruited, uh, earned a scholarship to the University of Missouri, uh, ended up being a four-year starter, started 40 straight games uh, and, and played well enough and ended up being drafted in the first round by the Dallas Cowboys. 1981 draft. Did you uh, say first round? First round, yes. You still got any of that money left? Because I could use a loan. <laughs> <laughs> I may have a few pennies left. Okay. I'll see you later then. <laughs> it's ironic. My daughter, who's going to graduate uh, from Mizzou, her starting salary is only $3,000 less than what my first year salary was at Dallas in 1981. Oh, that's interesting. She's going to be making 62, and my first year salary in 1981 was 65,000. That is bizarre. Back in those days when you had a part-time job during the summer, huh? I probably just missed that part, but, um, you know, it was, it was still good money then, but nowhere near. I mean, this just doesn't compare to what guys are making today. These, these players make more in a year than I made in seven years. Uh, and then some, yeah, so I, uh, drafted in the first round by the Dallas Cowboys, uh, 26th pick overall, which was, it was, it was pretty, it was a joy. I mean, I, I was completely excited. Um, and I had an inkling that I was going to be drafted in round one, uh, based on the the contact contact that I'd had from several teams. But uh, the Cowboys uh, showed very little interest in me at all, and it's probably part of the way that they play their game anyway. Yeah. Um, but anyway, nonetheless, I, I went played six years there. Got cut after my sixth year. Uh, we had, had our first losing season in, I don't know, 19 seasons. There was a lot of turnover. I think they turned over about a third of the roster. Uh, ended up going to the New York Jets. I was there to the last cut. Um, and, you know, I, that was that's a whole other story in and of itself. A few weeks later, signed as a free agent with the Seattle Seahawks. And um, I think I was playing in my third game there and, and blew out my left knee. And I'd made a promise to myself after a severe knee injury uh, after my fourth year at Dallas that if I ever had another one, uh, then I would call it quits. So I I knew at that moment that my career was over. Um, so after finishing um, that season and, you know, I immediately decided to retire. Um, but I ended up going back to school. So that was in October when I had the, the knee surgery. Um, ended up enrolling uh, back at uh, back in school in January of '88 because I hadn't finished my uh, my degree work at Mizzou. 
Uh, I started as an engineering student um, and ultimately ended up in broadcast communications, but didn't have enough hours in my area of emphasis. So I had to go back. Um, uh, Later graduated from uh, Mizzou in December of 1988 and decided that, uh, you know, sign and go to work. So sending out resumes and tapes, you know, a a lot of guys in my situation think that uh, they are ready for the big time. So I'm sending out my stuff to the ESPNs of the worlds and all the, the, all the network, um, uh, the, the TV networks, CBS, ABC, um, NBC. And my response was, uh, disappointing to say the least. Um, but as a result, I mean, I did get some offers to work in small markets, but I didn't, you know, I felt that I didn't, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't ready for that. I wanted the big time. So it was a humbling experience. But in the meantime, you know, one Sunday morning, it was in uh, like March, February, March of 89. I'm reading the Dallas Morning News. I had moved back to Dallas. And in in the main section, the news section, uh, there was a full page CIA ad. Now, I had never had any desire at all to work in uh, federal government, civil service or anything like that. But I was just looking for a way into some organization. So at the bottom of this ad, uh, there was a, a section that listed all the areas of employment where they were looking for uh, for people. And once it communications, well, I figured that would be a way for me to get into the organization, um, maybe do some industrial uh, communications, things like that. But I wanted to get some meat on my resume uh, because there... I also was very, um, to be honest with myself, I was wondering if people were really taking me seriously. Being, you know, African-American, being an athlete, I thought that if I could go to work uh, at CIA, uh, work for a couple of years, didn't get back into the job market, people would take me more seriously. So you had felt underestimated at that point. Uh, I did. I really did. Um, and, And again, no one told me that. That was just my own head. Um, you know, talking to me, but you know, I, I, I thought that there was a good chance that, uh, you know, that, that was probably, there's some, probably some truth to that. Um, that said the ball started rolling. Um, I ended up going to a, uh, uh, an introductory meeting with a recruiter and that went well. And the next thing I know, a couple months later, I'm being invited up for an interview in the Washington DC. So that's how it started. Um, went back a few months later, um, did my polygraph, did some more testing. Um, and and they told me sort of at the end of that visit that I was probably too honest to be a case officer, but (laughs) (laughs) commentary, one of those those people that recruit spies, people will spy on their their own governments, but uh, they did say, well, our, our office of security uh, which is part of the whole support element of the agency, uh, is interested in you uh, for a position. Would you be interested in talking with them? I said, of course. Um, so they hustled me over to another office, talked to some folks over there, and, um, you know, I'd say less than a week later, I got an offer um, from the agency, and it was the best offer I had received, you know, of, of anything since I had graduated. Um, and so I thought I was on my way. And, um, you know, it, it was great. It was, it was, 
you know, working at that at that place was um, far and wide beyond what I had ever thought I would ever do in my life. Um, and I, why is that? First of all, when you walk in, you know, there's such a mystique, and there, there's so many unknowns about uh, the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, and that's really it. There, there's not. I mean, there's enough stuff out there from Hollywood and books that everyone draws their own conclusions about what the place is really like. And I will say it's probably about ten percent of that, <laughs> uh, what you see in Hollywood and, and what you see written um, uh, in black and white. Um, but I, I have to tell you, I mean, it, it, just looking back over the thirteen years uh, that I was there, the the places that I went. I've traveled to the experiences that I had there. Uh, nothing really rivals that. Um, and and I, I can share some of the things that I did. Um, I, I, my first job, I was a background investigator working on the West Coast, working on uh, uh, individuals that worked on defense and intelligence contracts. Uh, from there, I did executive protection for four different CIA directors and, and their deputy directors. Uh, I spent some time working um, uh, in the intelligence community management staff, uh, which I think that that title has sort of disbanded or morphed into something else. There were 14 intelligence uh, community agencies at that time. Now I think there were 18. But I was doing a lot of policy stuff. I was briefing um, you know, Capitol Hill staffers. Um, and it was pretty, it was really interesting, you know, doing things, you know, working on security policies for, for physical and personnel security standards. Um, a lot of the standards that involve, for instance, the new embassies that are going to be built, you know, what, uh, what are the requirements that have to be, uh, in place, you know, both, uh, externally and internally, just to give you an example, uh, and then personal secu- personnel security standards, you know, revising what it takes to uh, get a security clearance. You know, how far back do you go in a person's background and other little things about that whole investigative process and adjudicative process. From there, um, I ended up serving at um, the uh, embassy in Tel Aviv. So I was responsible for our facilities and personnel at the embassy in Tel Aviv. And the Jerusalem and the consulate in Jerusalem. This is before, of course, the Trump administration, which has, has decided to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, and from there, um, came back to Washington D.C. after working in in Tel Aviv for two and a half years. And uh, my last assignment was um, conducting security clearance adjudications, deciding, you know, which applicants would get a clearance and those that are you know, of the current staffers and, and contractors, uh, which ones would continue to keep their clearances or, or have their clearances revoked. So it's, it's a mouthful. Um, and then there's a lot of things I did in between uh, that uh, I can't not really discuss. Um, but it was, it was tremendous. You know, I learned so much about government and process, but a lot about the intelligence community. And um, certainly watching the last four years of the Trump administration, uh, I have learned to appreciate, you know, my time at the agency, but also the people that work there. You've seen uh, the likes of John Brennan, um, 
uh, Mike Morrell, guys that served as either acting or, or directors of central intelligence on CNN, MSNBC. And those are people that I, that I worked with, um, on a somewhat daily basis, you know, in the director's suite. And it's, it's just amazing to be able to sit, you know, from my chair now as a, as a civilian and listen to the things that are all, you know, just brings back so many different memories from the time that uh, I spent there. I'm curious as to what in the world was going through your head in early January during the insurrection at the U S Capitol. What were you thinking? Well, uh, my first thought was, you know, how, how could this happen? Certainly like everyone else did. And why wasn't the Capitol Hill police department more prepared? And it, the next thought was, you know, there's something's not right about this because I know how these buildings are defended, even though the, the Capitol, you know, it's the, it's the people's building. I mean, there are visitors going in and out of that building during normal periods. But in the time of COVID, of course, those buildings were shut down. They were shut down to, to tours and all that. And then as, as things develop, you know, a day, a couple of days later, you realize that uh, the people that were doing the tours being given, we assume, by either Capitol Hill staffers or, you know, authorized by, you know, um, some members of Congress, that those people were probably doing reconnaissance tours. Oh, yeah. Preparing yeah. for, you know, the January 6th incident. And... Um, you just wonder why, how those tours were able to go off without, you know, uh, higher up authority saying, uh, no, we're not doing this because of uh, reason A or reason B. Um, but then I thought, okay, where, where was the intelligence? Certainly something of this magnitude, uh, because the ears are always listening, you know, especially in Washington, D.C., um, and then I, I, I wondered, as pieces of the puzzle started coming, you know, together, the account from the Capitol Hill police chief that says he requested uh, National Guard and support from the, I think, the, the, the Secretary of the Army or whoever it was. And that person within, at the Army was saying that wasn't the case. Well... On the other end of that line was the uh, acting uh, District of Columbia Police Department, the, the chief. So he confirms that this uh, Capitol Hill police chief did request that information. So there was the, the, the disconnect. You know, was the Secretary of Army getting his marching orders from someone else, you know, to, to call in National Guard troops? Uh, because they should have been there a lot sooner than they, I think it was probably three or four hours uh, from the time that they were requested to the time that they were called. And it, and it, you know, was done by the vice president at the time, uh, Mike Pence, um, not Donald Trump, as he had indicated in one of his uh, recorded videos. So my, my thing is that as this investigation continues, we're going to find out some very interesting things about how and why this insurrection happens. I think you can reasonably uh, draw a lot of conclusions thus far from what we have learned through media. But um, 
I, I have a feeling we're going to find out a lot more, and it's not going to be pretty. Well, I, I, I certainly get that. I, I now uh, have a really good reason to call you an undercover brother. Um, but, you know, you, you've done so many different things. Um, you know, a lot of us uh, in life do one thing, we kind of start and we end in the same basic position. We might have moved up internally or, or whatever, but same job, whatever. I'm not like that. I happen to believe you have to reinvent yourself every 10 years uh, or you just get stale. Uh, you've been all over the place doing different things. It takes a certain type of personality to do that. So where do you find the resilience and the ability to move from football to communications to the CIA to civic involvement? Well, the easy answer is I think I was taught a long time ago to always do your best in whatever situation you're placed in. And the more you do, the more respect you earn and the more eyes that fall upon you. Um, I, I was always of the, um, you know, of the, of the fabric that if I have to do something, I'm, I'm going to give it my best no matter what. I may not, the results may not be the greatest, but I'm always going to uh, give it my best. From a, from a sports background, it's my competitive nature, you know, always wanting to win uh, and always wanting to be the best. So you, you, preparation, you, you practice, you're going to play like you practice. You learn that as a kid. And at every level of the sport, you know, that that intensity grows, you know, from from high school to college from college to the professional ranks. Um, and it's there. And, you know, people say, wow, you know, I, I, I laugh at, at people when they talk about how much stress they have in their life. And I don't, I'm not discounting that stress, but I always said, you know, you want to know what stress is. You try playing in front of 80,000 people, screwing up, have people boo you, <laughs> go home, listen to your neighbors, you know, talk about how bad you played, read about it the next day, uh, in the papers, and then hear it all over talk radio. Then you got to go watch the film with your team and see how much you screwed up. That's pressure. That causes a lot more stress. So you, so you have to be on. I mean, the goal is to be on on game days when it counts. But in order to do that, it's what you do throughout the week. It, it's the preparation. It's the practice. It's the hours of film study. So that when you walk on that field on game day, you're ready. And I have always tried to apply that in in my other professional disciplines. I think that was probably why, uh, at least that's what I was you know, why someone with a liberal arts background uh, and the discipline of a professional athlete was attractive in um, you know at, at the agency because you know they they want they need the best and the brightest. They need people that are committed, people that can work in a team environment uh, without trying to, you know, you know, take all the credit for, for everything. You know, when, you know, you win as a team, you, you lose as a team, your, your successes come uh, as a unit and so do your failures. So I've always been uh, that way. And I've always tried to impart the same uh, knowledge on others, especially when talking to youth, 
Um, and I, I, I tell them, especially the, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh graders uh, in the urban communities, I was you. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, um, but I knew that whatever it was that I was going to choose, I was always going to do my best um, and try to outwork the other people. Um, so that is, you know, it's, it's, it's really simple. And, and I may, I may sound like I'm oversimplifying it, but that's always how I have conducted myself. And, uh, you know, the the results, you know, have, especially at the agency, the results, you know, ended up, you know, I guess having watchful eyes on me and saying, you know, we believe this person um, is capable to perform uh, in a number of areas um, where others may not. Uh, and I had been going to Tel Aviv and traveling throughout the Middle East, you know, for probably seven or eight years before actually um, moving there and being assigned. Uh, so that that previous experience when other people didn't want to go, because uh, I always volunteered, um, was was a benefit to me. I would say uh, working both in the NFL and in the CIA, you would have to have a significant amount of mental toughness. So do you think people are born with all the mental toughness they'll ever have, or do you think it can be built over time? I think it can be built, um, but I don't know that everyone is built for it. I don't know that everyone has the stomach for that. Um, and and there are a lot of good athletes that you know are, are, are great uh, in high school, guys that are great in college. But there's so I mean if you just look at the, the the number of of National Football League players that are already given time, you know, roughly two thousand every year. You know, less than one percent, probably less than half half a percent of all college football players can make it to the NFL. And if they do, they only stay for a year, maybe two. Uh, so to to my goal was to play ten years, but to to have a seven year career, um you know, I'm pretty pleased with that. Uh, even though I had injuries and I did not fulfill all of my goals, uh, I came close. But but just being there and, and being a part of that uh, tradition, part of that fraternity, is something that I'm I'm very proud of. Uh, but again, it, it's it's about that um, you know that mental toughness that it took to get there. When you're sweating, when your body's telling you I'm done, I can't go anymore. You know, your brain says, no, you must, you have to, you know, we need you. We depend on you. You can't give up now. You can't quit. Um, so that's for me, that's, you know, and that I was able to segue that into, you know, long hours where they're on a detail. You're working 17, 18, 19 hour days um, with very little breaks. So that, that's just part of it. You sign up for it uh, and you do it. It's much like being. You know what it's like to, to, to be a police officer. You know, it's a tough job. You could go to work one day and not come home. But right. that's what you signed up for. Um, so it, it, you have to be mentally tough. Your level of awareness has to be, you know, always high. Um, after my training at the agency, you know, I never sit with my back to a doorway. Um, because I'm always, yeah, you know, but you're always looking for, you know, the, the things that are unusual, things that are out of place. And I was with a friend of mine who owns a lot of vehicles and we were talking about that 
forget what it's called. The, uh, the, the acronym is HUD, but with the, the speedometer, that's the, that's uh heads up display. That's what it's called. Ah. The speedometer is in your uh, windshield. Yeah. I've got one of those. You know, at first, you know, I've, you know, I've, I've driven a number of vehicles that I've rented, of course, that have it. It takes some getting used to. Yeah. You know, you're because what happens is my eyes are immediately focused on that. And, you know, obviously, the more you drive it, uh, it becomes more natural to you. But but that's the same thing. If someone, you know, if it's 80 degrees outside and some guy walks in the door wearing a long trench coat, there's something that's not right about that picture. So I, I guess my antenna always seemed to go up because I'm always looking for, you know, what's what's out of place, what's what's unusual. And, you know, for my daughter, it wasn't a good thing for her because <laughs> I, noticed <laughs> <laughs> I noticed everything about her. She's like, oh, my God, you're so, oh, you're so annoying. How do you know all this stuff? And I said, you know, it's just, it's just who I am, so. Hey, Howard, were you one of these fathers that when your daughter had a first date with some boy that you'd sit out on the porch with a with your overalls on and one strap down and no shirt with a shotgun sitting there with a big knife whittling on some wood saying, boy, you best be bringing my daughter home soon, safe and sound. Was that you? Well, minus the overalls and minus the shotgun. <laughs> I had another weapon, but yes, indeed. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and I would tell her, hey, don't even think about bringing some guy in here with sagging pants and uh, a grill in his mouth. It's not happening. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, you, you deserve better. You you need to be more selective. Um, you just, and, and this is what, to me, you, you've got to have someone uh, as ambitious as you are, as, as ambitious as she is, you know, you want someone that has that shares that same sort of ambition and drive for success. Yeah. Um, so, you know, surround yourself with, with like people, be a leader. Um, and you know, your, your life's going to be much better as a result of that. You know, you, yeah. if you play in the gutter, you're going to stay in the gutter. So I'm with you. Well, I tell you, uh, by the time this episode airs, the weekend's games are going to be over, okay? So I've got to ask you, you got to pick the two championship games in the Super Bowl winner for me. So you got Chiefs and the Bills. You got Green Bay and Tampa. Um, you got two young quarterbacks versus two relatively old quarterbacks, one on Manchin. How you see these matching up? These are going to be some, I think, really outstanding matchups. At least the, they have the potential to. Be. Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's start, since you guys are in Kansas City, we'll start in the NFC. Um, Tampa and Green Bay. Um, you'd like to think, well, Green Bay has an edge because of the weather. Well, you know, Tom Brady played in New England for, you know, a century. So he's used to playing in lousy conditions. Uh, it's if the other players around him can do that, can step up to the plate. Uh, it's been a long time since Tampa Bay has been there. Uh, Green Bay seems really primed. I think Aaron Rodgers um, is the MVP this year from what I've seen. He's got an outstanding receiver in Devontae Adams. Um, I think, you know, minus something weird happening, I think Green Bay wins that game at home. And I think with Kansas City, obviously the – the, the wild card here is the health of Patrick Holmes. Um, you know, if if Patrick is 
hitting on all, all cylinders. You know, he's Kansas City owns the Buffalo Bills. Uh, no, no, KC has kept it interesting lately in several games, but they, with their edge and with their uh, ability to take control of a game and hit big plays virtually at any time, and especially when they need it most, um, you know, they have to be the favorite. Uh, if if Mahomes is there, and it from what I can tell, what I heard today, I think uh, all indications are that he will be okay. I think the foot injury was okay. Um, slight edge to uh, well, an edge goes to the Chiefs at home, um, simply because of Andy Reid, uh, Patrick Mahomes, and you know they've got some tremendous weapons. You know, Buffalo uh, has been a very interesting team. But I don't know that they are ready for the stage yet with their second-year quarterback, Josh Allen. I mean, he's, he's had a tremendous year also, and Stephon Diggs has been great. Uh, but I'm not sure if they, um, you know, can, can actually overtake Kansas City. So that said, I'm picking Kansas City and Green Bay in the Super Bowl. Um, and, wow, if, if, if those two teams do match up, I think it's a toss-up. I really do think it's a toss-up, and um, but I, I think you could conceivably say that uh, Kansas City gets an gets an edge you know, simply because um, you know, they they're the the defending champion and they have just played and been able to get it done when they needed to. You know, Green Bay. Uh, I would never bet against Aaron Rodgers, but I think Kansas City probably has uh, give a slight edge to their defense, and that's why I think they ultimately. Uh, should win that game if they make it to the Super Bowl. I love the man's predictions. No wonder you went to a gift to school as a child. <laughs> <laughs> Call him like I see him. Hey, good, and I appreciate that. I think that's uh, – I'm, I'm kind of looking at him the same way, but i tell you what, one thing's for sure, these are going to be a very interesting football weekend around this entire country. Indeed, even even last weekend in the divisional rounds, uh, yeah. the games were pretty good. Um, uh, just exciting, and I think it's what people need. Uh, given the way twenty twenty went with COVID and you know the horrible economy and you know uh, <laughs> four years of Trump, um, football to me became something that that brought people together. And I said before the season that. You know, forget about baseball, forget about basketball. This country doesn't have football, you know, both college and the NFL. It's going to be worse than um, anyone could imagine. So kudos to what the league did. Kudos to the the commissioners of the Power Five conferences, especially the SEC, where what Mizzou plays in. They got it right. And uh, we got the college football season in, and it sure looks like we're going to be able to finish uh, the NFL season as well. Um, So, I think the leadership at those levels uh, did what they were supposed to do. They listened to the science, you know, they took some risk risks and, but that's, that's what we all do on a daily basis. If if you don't take the risks, you don't get the rewards. Yeah. It's part of life in many, many respects. Truly is. As we close our conversation and on that topic of risk, um, I want to ask, um, for your advice, if, if some of our listeners are looking at having to make a pretty significant career change, um, kind of like you did, what piece of advice would you give them? 
figure out where you want to be, you know, where you are most suited to be, you know, what opportunities exist and where you see yourself being able to contribute the most. Um, I turned down a position on what's today, today's Thursday. I turned down a position on Monday with the St. Louis County government, um, making a little bit more money than I had uh, been making at the university of Missouri. But, you know, having worked uh, at the federal government level, having worked um, in state government, you know, working at the university, um, you, you only have so much appetite for you know, how much you can do, how much you can contribute. You know, there's a lot of bureaucracy. Um, St. Louis County has some unique issues. Um, if you if people have been paying attention lately, uh, racism, you're still dealing with issues going back to, uh, the Mike Brown shooting in 2014. Uh, there's division within the County. Uh, there's uh, most recently the brother-in-law of the County, St. Louis County chief of the police was a ditch dispatcher, uh, used a racial slur on the air. So that was broadcast just after the chief had indicated that, uh, there was no race racism uh, within the ranks. Um, and then, you know, a year before that, there was a, a huge lawsuit uh, that they settled uh, uh, with a gay uh, with a gay sergeant who wanted to be promoted uh, and ultimately, you know, sued and won um, as a result because he was being mistreated. And uh, I mean, it's just just a lot going on there. And, you know, it's. It, they wanted me to sort of be sort of a liaison between government and uh, the community. And I just felt at this stage in my life, I, I wanted to, uh, I didn't want to be sort of a whipping boy, if you will. Uh, and I could, you could feel that it, it almost would have been uh, sort of a, a thankless job. No matter what you say or do, people aren't going to be happy. Uh, some of the roles that I'm a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some of the roles that I'm looking at now, I, I can use my experience, um, uh, have a, a an opportunity to do some mentoring for youth. Um, and I think those positions that I think would give me more gratification going forward. Um, you know, I, I want to work probably at least another five or six years before considering retirement for good. Uh, it may be more than that, maybe less, but. I can see myself being able to, to, I've got that, that much in my tank that if I can work in an industry like that, where I'm being, you know, productive and helping others, um, along the way, then, you know, I, that's, that's exciting to me where you can actually make a difference, uh, in a community. And, um, you know, I don't know if that, if I was meant to do that, but uh, at the very least, you know, you, I gain a lot of joy and excitement being able to, to mentor and, and see smiles on people's faces. And, uh, you know, the end result is they, they have learned a little bit from me and I've, I've helped them along the way because I had a lot of people helping me along the way, great mentors, great teachers, you know, be them family, friends, uh, neighbors, teachers. Um, you know, they, they saw something in me and, and propped me up and, and supported me and uh, led me to uh, a point where, I was ready to, to jump off and do the rest by myself. And uh, I'm extremely grateful and happy, you know, to all of them uh, for their belief in me. As we close out, Howard, 
I want to ask you about one very special thing. How's that book coming? <laughs> you know, I, um, I I'm at the stage now where um, we're, we're wrapping things up. I've got to talk to a couple more people. Um, but as things unfolded at the Capitol on January 6th, uh, my co-writer, Carl Shookman, and I had a conversation. And he said, you know, can you talk about some of the close calls that you had? And I said, as a matter of fact, I can't. You know, um, looking at what happened at the Capitol, back in 98, there was a shooting uh, of two Capitol Hill police officers. And I had just vacated um, that building through the exit where that, that gunman came in and shot those two Capitol Police officers. And so, uh, and there have been a number of really close calls that will be in the book that, you know, I've, I've been just sort of right there uh, on the fringe of, of saying, you know, if, if, if I were in a situation to have done something, you know, to prevent that, how would I have, um, how would I have reacted? And then, you know, it's a, it's a matter of leaning on your training. Uh, and so I'm, I'm going to try to go into uh, a little depth in the book. So I'm, I'm going to develop, I think, those thoughts, those five thoughts of those scenarios that I uh, found myself in and uh, see if that will add something to the book. But um, most of the interviews, you know, probably 95 percent of the interviews are done. Uh, we're working on the uh, I think maybe the last time we talked, we're working on the uh, uh, the, the treatment to present to uh, a literary agent. And my co-writer is is in the process of he just sold his house. So they're buying another house, moving to Kansas City. All right. Um, house. Yeah. Um, so we as soon as he gets that wrapped up, um, you know, we're going to get back into this thing and try to get it out. Be ready to start doing this thing um, at least by if not late spring, maybe early summer. Fantastic. All right. We're looking forward to it. It's going to be something that I'm sure people will pick up and be rewarded for having done so. Thank you very much, Howard, for being with us and talking to us, my friend. And like I say, you're my favorite undercover brother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate it. It's it's been awesome and uh, great to talk to you guys and uh, look forward to hopefully one day coming back again and, and talking about another topic. We'll be around and we hope you will be as well. Outstanding. Thank you. All right. Take care.